Well, we've um, left a little additional time uh, tonight at the end because we're going to be having a time of baptism for any of you who believe that Jesus would be calling you to be baptized tonight. So you can even be thinking about that. And um, we've been talking about the gospel, and we're going to be doing that again tonight. And maybe you're saying, well, don't you ever get tired of talking about the gospel? And um, no, I don't. I the more I see the gospel as a beautiful diamond and explore all of its individual facets and then explore the beauty of it as a whole, I am getting more energized from week to week talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope you are as well. And um, we're going to talk about it again tonight. And we're going to start out by, remember I said we're learning this gospel line upon line, precept upon precept. And so I want to start out by doing a little bit of review tonight. And so uh, let's, let's just review for a moment what we've learned so far. I think it's going to come up on the screens here. First thing we learned about the gospel is this, that the gospel was God's idea. God's idea. God invented the gospel. And uh, it was not the product of some man's fanciful imagination. It originated in the heart of God. Paul in Galatians 1 said, I did not receive this from any man. I received it from Jesus Christ himself. So the gospel was God's idea. Would you say that with me? The gospel was God's idea. Second, the gospel is God's plan for reconciliation. The gospel is a plan, a beautiful plan, a marvelous plan, an intricate plan whereby God made it possible for the holy creator of all that is to be reconciled with sinful mankind. He bridged the gap with his gospel plan. He did. Third, the gospel is primarily about a person. And the person's name is the one we've been singing about tonight. His name is Jesus. I want to recommend a book to you. I'm recommending several books throughout this series. This one's written by a friend of mine named Jared Wilson. And and the title of the book is Your Jesus is Too Safe. (laughs) Love that title. Your Jesus is Too Safe. And Jared takes on those who have a view of Jesus that is only one-dimensional or one-sided and He goes into the scriptures and explains and reveals Jesus as the Bible reveals him. I highly recommend the book to you. Your Jesus is too safe because the gospel is primarily about Jesus. The plan was a person. And then fourth, we noted that the gospel is ultimately for the glory of God, isn't it? We, of course, can partake of the benefits of the gospel when we embrace it, when we believe it. It It benefits us greatly, and we rejoice in those gifts, those gospel gifts, but ultimately the gospel is for the glory of God. It is to show the gloriousness of God, to spread his fame far and wide, to show Satan and demons even that God is brilliant, that he is wise, that he is loving, and that he is just. And so the gospel is ultimately for God's glory. And here's another book recommendation for you. This is called God is the Gospel by a guy named John Piper. This has got some meat in it, okay? This has got some depth in it. Um, this gospel's, or this book has been rearranging my understanding of the gospel and really describing and explaining from the scriptures how the gospel does reveal the glory of God. So God is the gospel. Check it out. We noted that the gospel message has a focal point, and that focal point is a cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. And that there at the cross on Calvary, the 
justice of God and the mercy of God met and mercy prevailed, thank God. Amen? Mercy prevailed at the cross. God was able to punish His own Son, His own innocent Son for our sins and so be just. At the same time, He can now offer mercy and grace to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So the cross stands as the the um, most popular and most loved symbol of the Christian faith throughout two millennia, the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't worship the cross. We worship the one who hung on the cross, but we appreciate its value. Several weeks back, we noticed that the gospel message is the very good news that overwhelms the extremely bad news of mankind's guilty standing before his creator. And we realized that in order to really appreciate the gospel as good news, we need to first understand the bad news of where all of humanity stands before God apart from the gospel. We looked at Romans 1, 2, and 3 to see that. And then last weekend, we just kind of feasted on Jesus. And we saw how that really Jesus is the gospel. He is our substitute, isn't he? He died for our sins. He is our victor. He is our redemption. He is our justification. He is our new covenant sacrifice. He's all that and much, much, much more. Because he willingly went to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's that great exchange we talked about. He took our sin we, through our faith, receive His righteousness. And so we've been learning about the gospel, and there's a lot there. Most of us, though, don't understand all of this at first, do we? Um, Maybe you're just coming to understand the gospel as we've been exploring it the last few weeks. But most of us at first, when we're first exposed to these kinds of things, really we just feel like, I'm a mess, I need help, Jesus help me. And that's okay. God takes us from that place. I'm a mess. I need help. Jesus help me to help us to understand how the cross is our help and how Jesus is our help. I want to ask uh, Lance, if you would, to come on up here right now. Lance is a guy who, um, well, came to Christ. This has been a, spiritually, this has been a good year for you. Yes, it has. And... um, Lance gave his life to Jesus a few months ago and was baptized here. And uh, I asked Lance to share a little bit of his story with us tonight. And um, a lot of times when I've talked to you guys, I've, I've mentioned that I feel like in my upbringing I had every advantage given to me spiritually. I had Christian parents. I was raised in church. I heard about the gospel. And even though I was given every advantage, I still messed it up. <laughs> um, but that really wasn't your story, was it, as far as your upbringing and your exposure to Christianity into church wasn't quite like mine. Tell us a little bit about uh, your upbringing. Um, I was basically raised with um, zero spiritual influence. Um, I never went to church as a kid. And uh, really, uh, in February, when I finally made the decision to come to New Life, um, it was the first time that I had been to church uh, for the purposes of going to church for myself. Um, I'd been to funerals, I'd been to weddings and christenings, but I'd never actually been to church to worship or really understand what what it was all about so it um it kind of struck me out of nowhere and i ended up here and i I, i've actually not missed a a church weekend Mm -hmm. yet so you mentioned that um god had kind of 
Well, I think they appeared to be coincidences at the time, but God had orchestrated all these little circumstances and chance meetings with different people. God was after you. He was pursuing you. Talk a little bit about what prompted you to start searching. Um, I had a lot of things going on in my life at the time, um, a lot of stresses at work, um, struggling with my marriage, uh, you know, as we all do, worrying about my kids and making sure that I'm a good father. And I spent a lot of uh, time stressing about it and worrying about it and uh, laying awake at night. And uh, even though as a kid I never had any spiritual upbringing, I always felt like something wasn't quite right with me. I always felt sort of disconnected. And uh, I actually, um, uh, through a friend one day, I was stressed out. I decided to hang out with a friend. I uh, went house hunting and ended up with a real estate agent who is a member at New Life. And uh, the, they were talking about church and what church they go to. And uh, the name New Life stuck in my head. And about three months later, I uh, just kind of woke up one day and felt like I wanted to go to church. And uh, through that, I kept bumping into people that were talking about uh, Jesus and um, a close friend of mine recommended, you know, that with some of my stresses that I might uh, look to God and look to the church to uh, find some sort of uh, relief from that. And uh, it just seems like every turn there was something that, that would come, uh, you know, out of the blue. A uh, friend's mother bought me a, a book called The Purpose of Christmas, which sort of uh, in layman's terms explains Jesus and, and his purpose uh, to believers. Mm-hmm. And I just again and again, and, and, it, and it still continues um, to this day, you know, I, I went to uh, the Discovering Christianity course here, and uh, Claude Davis, who is an amazing um, example of a Christian, really uh, opened my eyes. And I think at, at just some point, it just struck me one day, and I just, I don't know, just woke up. <laughs> I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, we've said it here before, but we pursue God because He first pursued us. There's a verse in the Bible that says, um, "God loved us first. We love him because he first loved us. And God was after you. God was pursuing you. God was placing people in your path to just kind of point you in the right direction. And um, you started coming to church, reading the Bible. You're hearing about Jesus, Jesus Christ. And at some point you believed. You trusted Jesus Christ. And uh, why Jesus? There's no, there's no other way. I mean, there's Jesus is the way. And um, at at first, when I came uh, came here, I sort of just had the mentality that I'm just going to do it. You know, I'm just going to immerse myself, read the Bible every day, talk to people that that believe, and you know, maybe then you know it'll just I'll I'll get there. And I think that's that's really what happened. I just kept thinking about it, and the more I thought about it, and the more I read, and the more people I talked to, uh, the more hungry I got for it. Mm. And uh, I hope that uh, that hunger never goes away. And uh, I think uh, just sitting here, just, you know, I I felt disappointed or, like, discouraged at first because I wasn't, you know, I didn't feel God, and I didn't really know, I guess, like, expect what I was going to feel. But uh, one day in here, um, uh, they were talking about agape love and um, just the purity of it and purity of God's love for us, and it struck me. And I, uh, uh, during the final prayer, I sort of just started crying and uh, just... It was pretty much Wait that a second. Point. You started crying? You're like <laughs> this big strapping guy. Yeah, actually, I tear up here a lot. It's <laughs> That's cool. God touched your heart Certainly. with his love. And um, you've got a powerful story of God changing your life. And um, I know that you've trusted Christ. I was here when you got baptized and was out there cheering for you. And um, 
God's starting to transform you. He's starting to change you in different ways. What are you, what are you seeing in your life now that you've trusted Jesus for your salvation? Mostly just feeling um, less stress. Mm-hmm. I'm not as worried about things. I've kind of just laid it out there, and I'm just letting God sort of guide the way. And I know that you know, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I know that I'm going to get there. So I just let God guide me. And um, it, I, I think it's made me more conscious of the time that I spend with my children. Uh, I think it's made me, in, in that, it's made me a better father. It's made me better at work. It's just helped a lot. And I think that the more, again, the more I get into it, the, the more hunger I have for it. And it just, it just continues to build. And uh, I keep getting involved in more, more things. And so it's just a continual growth process. And I'll probably never be at the end, but I'm working on it. Amen. Thanks for sharing, man. Thanks. Let's uh, thank Lance for sharing his story with us. Our memory verse, uh, the first week of this series, was Romans 1.16, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. Amen? The gospel changes people's lives. It changes their eternal destinies. It changes their value system, their outlook on life, their relationships. We have a glorious Savior and a glorious gospel. And tonight I want to talk with us about responding to the gospel. Responding to the gospel. And really, the, the sermon in a sentence is this. The only appropriate effective, God-glorifying response to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ is to truly believe it. To truly believe it. Believe it. That's the response to this amazing truth that Jesus Christ came, lived the perfect life that none of us could live, was nailed to a cross, shed His blood as payment for our sins, and then God raised Him from the dead three days later to demonstrate that the Father was satisfied with the payment offered by the Son. The only appropriate, effective, God-glorifying, God-pleasing response to hearing that good news is to believe it. That's what the Bible says. Read these verses, if you would, aloud with me. Romans 1.16, I just quoted it. Read it aloud with me. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Romans 3.22a, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Ephesians 1.13 You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The only appropriate, effective, God-glorifying response to the gospel, according to the word of God, is to believe it. And there's so much of the gospel that is so unbelievable to so many people that a holy God absolutely hates sin 
and that sin separates mankind from God is unbelievable to so many people. Or that sin justly deserves eternal punishment is unbelievable to so many. Or that God loves mankind so much that he planned for our reconciliation. Or that the Creator would die for his creation. Or that Jesus' death on the cross accomplished so much. Or that God literally raised Jesus from the dead. But as unbelievable as it all sounds, you better believe it. Because it's true. It's true. The only appropriate, effective, God-glorifying response to hearing the gospel of Jesus is to truly believe it at a deep heart level, just like Lance did a few months ago. And I want to say this. True believing... True believing results in salvation and eternal life. This is part of the good news of the gospel too, isn't it? Would you recite these verses with me aloud or read them from your notes? John 3.16. Anybody know this verse? Let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. True believing in the gospel results in salvation and eternal life being given as a gift to those who believe and only to those who truly believe. There is a popular false teaching, heretical teaching floating around these days called universalism. Actually, it's been around for a while. And universalism teaches that God is so loving that everyone will ultimately be saved. Universalism. Everyone will be saved Even those who have never believed in Jesus, those who promote this teaching want us to believe that that God is so loving that he could never, ever send anybody to hell or eternal damnation. And so just feel good about the fact that everybody will be saved. That's what the universalists would have us believe. Problem is, as appealing as that sounds, it's not true. The Bible specifically refutes universalism. It actually says that only a few will be saved, ultimately. Certainly, Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient, get this now, sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world, right? But effective only for those who truly believe. The Bible is very clear. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of righteousness, only applied to true believers. Only those who have responded to the gospel in true faith will escape the judgment that's going to be poured out against sin. True believers will be saved. The rest will perish in hell forever, punished for their own sins. True believing results in salvation and eternal life. Now, some of you are saying, you keep using the phrase, true believing, and true believer, and those who truly believe, are you implying that there are false believers? 
Does the Bible say that there are people like that? Is there a kind of believing that is not effective in bringing salvation to people? And the answer is yes. There is such a thing as false believing, and I want to talk about about it for a moment. Number three, there is true believing and there is false believing. Say, explain that to me. Well, let's let the Word of God explain it to us. Let's read these scriptures aloud together. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Read it with me. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Empty is the word. Empty faith. James 2.19. Let's read this. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James 2.26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You need to know tonight that there is a type of faith, there are kinds of faith, kinds of believing that will not save anyone. The kinds talking about here, empty faith, demonic faith, dead faith. You say, well, what's empty faith? Otherwise you have believed in vain. What is that? It literally means your faith is is empty. It has no content. It's in vain. It's a faith that stops believing at some point. Like the seed sown in the shallow soil on rocky ground, it springs up quickly at first and appears to be robust. But then in the afternoon heat, it fades away because it has no deep roots. Mark chapter 4. Paul writes that true faith will persevere to the end of a person's life and keep holding firmly to the word despite trials and tribulations and disappointments. Those who give up on Jesus or turn away at some point of their lives give evidence that their faith was in vain, empty. You know anybody like that? Started out strong, kind of like fireworks, you know? Big, spectacular display at first and then kind of faded away. And, and one day you wake up and think, man, I, whatever happened to so-and-so? They were like really, you know, going for Jesus there for a while. This describes a lot of people. Jesus said that it would. He says that empty faith will not save you. I hope your faith tonight is not empty faith. I hope that you have not believed in vain. Then he talks about the kind of faith that demons have. And did you know that Satan and demons have faith? Believe you me, Satan believes in God. Demons believe in God. And there are people that you can talk to, and I know most of you, but maybe there are some in this room, that, and, and, and you're convinced that if you, that your belief in God, you believe that God exists, that that's enough. Like, I believe in God, so we're all good. It's cool. But I'm here to tell you, Satan believes in God, but his faith will not save him. He is going to hell, as are his demons, who also believe in God, as are people who believe in God and stop there and think that that's enough. That's why he says the demons believe that that God is one, and they shudder. They tremble. Why? Because they're going to hell. 
So there's empty faith. There's demonic faith that simply believes that God exists and thinks that, think that's enough. Now, believing that God exists is a good start. I mean, it, it's where faith needs to start, that you believe that God exists. But it is not enough to simply believe that God exists. Even the demons believe that. You must believe in the gospel. And then James talked about dead faith. Faith without deeds, faith without works is dead. So there's another kind of faith that will not save anybody. Dead faith. Dead faith is faith that doesn't change your life any. It's all talk and doesn't have any accompanying deeds or actions. It's faith that doesn't ever change your life, doesn't ever show up in your values, your mindset, your decisions, or your lifestyle. It's faith that says, I want Jesus as my Savior. I want Jesus as my get-out-of-hell-free card. I want Jesus as my fire insurance. But I don't really want Him as my master, like my Lord, my boss. I don't really want that. I just want to escape eternal punishment. So I want that side of Jesus, and I'm not really wild about that side of Jesus. That kind of faith is faith that will not save anybody. It's dead faith. It's faith that does not have any repentance of sin and sorrow over sin. And Jesus doesn't come in two packages. He's like one guy. (laughs) And if you want Jesus, you get the whole package. He's Savior and Lord. Amen? Acts 2.36 God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's both. You cannot say at that point of salvation, I want Jesus to save me, but I, I reject him as my Lord. The Bible does not record the stories of any true believers, truly saved people who said that. I want Jesus as my Savior, I reject him as my Lord. Now, certainly we grow in our understanding of obedience to our Lord, and we grow as Christians in our surrender to Jesus, our Master. But the man or woman who is being moved by the Holy Spirit to believe in Christ must be willing to be changed, must be willing to be transformed, to be different. And the evidence that someone's faith is living and not dead is demonstrated in their subsequent lifestyle and actions. See, the sad reality is that none of these kinds of faith, empty faith, demonic faith, dead faith, none of them will remove the barrier between humankind and God. None of them remove the condemnation that rests upon our entire race. None of them deter the wrath of God. They're not effective. That's why John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And how about John 3.36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So false belief and unbelief are equivalent in this. Neither of them bring salvation. So let's talk about true belief. How does... True faith, heartfelt, the real deal, the genuine article, how is that expressed? Well, I think we could say this. True believing is expressed by calling on Jesus, 
by calling on Jesus after hearing the gospel message. Say, where do you get that? Romans 10, 13 and 14. How about if you read that aloud with me? 10, 13 and 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? True believing is expressed by calling on Jesus after hearing the gospel. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Say, how do I know if I have true faith, if if I'm really believing? Well, is that being expressed through you calling on the name of the Lord? My prayer for some time now has been that tonight, this weekend at New Life, some of you, for the first time, will call on the name of the Lord and be saved. You see, God has been calling you. Like I mentioned with regard to Lance, God has been pursuing you. God has been calling you through his gospel. And your response of faith is to call out to him. Lord Jesus, save me from my sin is the only response to the gospel that makes any sense at all. Lord Jesus, save me from my sin. That's what calling on the name of the Lord means. And what a promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what does it say? Might be saved? What does it say? Shall be saved. (laughs) You can take that to the bank. Shall be saved. Not maybe, not if God's having a good day. Or not if, you know, you don't ever mess up again. You're going to mess up again. <laughs> I'm going to mess up again. This promise is, is not based on our performance. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we receive as a gift. That leads me to the next point of understanding true faith. Number five, true believing does away with any and all boasting. True faith, true believing does away with any and all boasting. You know how you know if you don't have true faith? You're still taking credit. (laughs) You're still talking about what you've done. But notice Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let's read this out loud together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith... And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now some of you read that and you say, well, this is not by works, but just a moment ago you said dead faith has no works. So which is it? It's like this. Your works cannot save you. Your works cannot earn salvation. But once you receive salvation, you are saved unto good works. Good works will accompany will follow true faith in Jesus Christ. Has to because the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your heart. And he begins to work in and through your life. And you begin to see some of those changes like Lance was talking about. True believing does away with any and all boasting. Boasting in this context so that no one can boast um, doesn't have to do with like how good your fantasy team is doing. Okay? <laughs> In this context, boasting has to do with taking credit, thinking that our own religious accomplishments impress God, and bragging to others about them. 
But didn't we see last weekend what God thinks of our absolute best efforts at self-righteousness? Didn't we see that? It's part of last week's message, probably the only part that many of you remember. Where we talked about, you know, when we come to God on the basis of our goodness and try to give Him our credentials and impress Him with how good we've been, what He thinks of all that. How disgusting it is. How yucky it is. That He's just not impressed. Listen, God designed the gospel in such a way as to totally eliminate human boasting so that Jesus Christ gets all the glory for it. Let me say that again. God designed the gospel in such a way as to totally eliminate human boasting so that God gets all the credit for it. Some people say, well, can I at least boast that I was smart enough to have faith in Jesus? No, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. God even gives you the faith to believe. There is no room for any human boasting in true believing faith. If you understand what I'm saying, just nod your head like this, so I just at least know, okay, four of you. Over and over again in the New Testament, we find this phrase, so that no one can boast, so that no one can boast, so that no one can boast and brag and say, look, I was good enough to be saved. God, you should let me into heaven because I'm that good. There is none good enough. God gets all the glory for your salvation and my salvation when we believe. That's why proud people can't get saved. Proud people cannot be saved until they are broken and humbled and come to God with their sin, just like everybody else has to. That leads us to the next truth about true believing, which is this, that true believing includes repentance. Repentance. Would you say that word with me? Repentance. Now, that word has gotten a bad rap. Because of the guys with the sandwich boards or the guys down at Broad and High or the guy down on the Oval at OSU with the big sign that says, you know, repent or burn. And, um, you know, regardless of what you think about those types of evangelists, repentance is actually a Bible word. It's in the Word of God. In fact, it's all over the Word of God. The word literally means to change your mind. The Greek word is metanoia, repent, metanoia, change your mind. Stop believing what you've been believing and embrace and believe something different. And there's no question that it is an essential part of faith. It's kind of the other side of the coin of faith. You must repent in order to truly believe. I want you to see this from the word of God so that you know that I'm not just making this up. And I... Scratch some of the scriptures from off your notes because it was just too many and it would have spilled over onto a second page. So here's our memory verse for this week. Mark 1.15. The time has come, he said. That's Jesus. The kingdom of God is near. What was his message? Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. Acts 20.21. This is Paul speaking. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in 
Repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There they are, both of them. See them? Repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. Turning away from one and embracing Jesus Christ. Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. I don't know if Acts 17.30 is on your outline, is it? Okay. That's, I excise that, but I've got it. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. I love 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, his promise to return. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. True believing involves ceasing to believe the stuff that you were believing. You say, like what? Well, like, I can impress God and gain his acceptance by doing good works. The person who is coming to Jesus Christ and is believing the gospel has to chuck that belief and turn away from it and say, I, I, I'm not believing that anymore. I don't, I don't really believe I can impress God with my good works because the Bible says my good works are disgusting to God. The person who was believing, I can do things to earn salvation... Repentance for that person means saying, no, I can't do enough good things to earn salvation. I've got to repent. I've got to turn from that belief and embrace the truth. How about this belief? Sin is no big deal. Everybody does it. And God's probably okay with it because he probably grades on the curve. Now, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. John 8, 24. Repentance means coming to see your sin as God does. Coming to see your pride and rebellion and lust and anger and bitterness and rage and self-absorption as disgusting and ugly, which is how God sees it. And to regret seeking pleasure in other things than the one true God. How about this belief? Some people believe this. I need to clean up my life before I come to Jesus. I need to stop all my disgusting bad habits, and then I'll come to Jesus and get saved. That is a false belief, and Jesus would say, repent of that belief. You cannot ever possibly clean up your life enough to come to me. You've got to let me clean up your life. Come as you are. He said, I have not come to call the righteous or the self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. He specializes in saving sinners. And so people who think they're righteous and have no need for a Savior can't be saved, won't come to Jesus. But those of us who are messed up, screwed up, broken, sinful, maybe we have a life, you know, in our wake of our lives is all kinds of messed up, relationships and everything else. But if you come to Jesus with that as you are, he says, yeah, you're the kind of person I specialize in saving. So stop believing that you have to clean up your life and be good before coming to me. Just come as you are. Some people think, well, Jesus' death wasn't enough and it needs to be supplemented by other things. 
rituals, sacraments, baptism, church membership, being good. But remember last week we saw that Jesus is our new covenant sacrifice and his blood was sufficient in the sight of God. That's one of the reasons God raised him from the dead, to show that the Father was satisfied. It's enough. I don't need Jesus plus. Salvation is not Jesus' death on the cross plus my good works, plus my baptism, plus my religion, plus my church membership. No, it's Jesus alone. That's the gospel. If it was Jesus plus, it wouldn't really be that good of news, would it? Well, you still got to kind of grind it out yourself too. Number seven. True believing not only involves repentance, it involves obedience. True believing involves obeying the gospel. Read these two very sobering verses aloud with me, would you? Second Thessalonians 1, 8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 4.17 For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You say, what does it mean to obey the gospel? Simply this means acknowledging the authority of the gospel over your life and submitting to its demands. You see, the gospel is not just a nice offer to be considered. Yeah, God, sounds pretty cool. I'll think about it. Who knows, maybe I'll take you up on it someday. It says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. We live under the authority of God, and the person with true faith recognizes that, and that's why sometimes we use the term bowing the knee to Jesus, bowing the knee, symbolizing I'm coming under the authority of Jesus and his gospel. It rules over my life, not the converse. Obeying the gospel. Truly believing the gospel involves rejecting pride and bowing the knee and acknowledging that our creator is the ultimate authority in the universe, has every right to make demands on us. Again, proud people cannot get saved until they've been humbled. And then the last thing I want to say about true faith, true belief, is this. Number eight, true believers will publicly confess Christ and be baptized. True believers will publicly confess Christ and be baptized. Would you read Romans 10, 9, and 10 out loud with me? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You might want to circle the word heart. It's in there twice. Believe in your heart. With your heart you believe. He's talking about heart belief, not head belief. And there's a difference. You know how the old loud sweating preachers used to say, for some of you, the difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches. The distance between your head and your heart. But there is a difference between head belief and heart belief, isn't there? Between just knowing something, knowing the facts. Oh, yeah, I know about Jesus. Yeah, I know. I know he died. I, I know he rose from the dead. I know it up here. 
but have you embraced it? Have you cherished it? Have you treasured it in here so that it's changed your life? Believe in your heart, it says. And it says, if you believe in your heart, you will confess with your mouth. Mark 8.38 says this. This is Jesus talking. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What's he saying? Man, if, if you're one of mine, if you love me, if I've saved you through my gospel, stand up, be counted, go public. Acts 8.12 when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So I wrote down these two statements. The notion of a true believer who won't publicly confess Christ is not found in the New Testament. The notion of a true believer who will not go public with it is not found in the New Testament. Like a closet Christian or an incognito Christian. You don't find that in the New Testament. Every believer, true believer, went public. And the notion of an unbaptized believer doesn't exist in the New Testament either except for the thief on the cross. And he had an excuse. And I would say it this way, you know, the only maybe reason, justifiable reason or excuse, if I might use that term, for not being baptized as a believer is if you're physically unable to do so, like the thief on the cross. You don't find the notion of an unbaptized believer in the New Testament, not a true believer, because that was their confession. That was their public confession. That's when often persecution would set in at that point. Like when you went public with it. It was one thing to have it all private in here. But it was another thing to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. He saved me. Let me give you, um, if you're thinking about this, baptism, the public confession, let me give you several quick reasons why you need to be baptized if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. Number one, to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus himself was baptized, although he didn't need to be because he didn't need to be saved. But he was baptized in part to set an example for those who would follow him. Second, you need to be baptized in order to identify with Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. That's why we baptize by immersion one time backwards in water, his death, his burial, and resurrection. It pictures that. It identifies you with Jesus Christ and what he did. Third, being baptized demonstrates your obedience as one of Jesus' disciples. To his disciples, he said, Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them. So if you want to be known as a disciple, be baptized. Fourth, fourth reason to be baptized is to publicly give him the glory for saving you. To publicly say, You know, I was a sinner, lost as a goose in high weeds, as they say down south. And Jesus saved me, and I want him to receive all the glory. In addition to those scriptural reasons, being baptized by immersion in water is a requirement here at New Life for becoming a member here, for becoming a ministry partner with us.
Now, new life we baptize by immersion because we believe it's the most biblical mode. It best symbolizes what happens to someone at that moment of salvation. So I want you to take a look at this video clip and um, see how this kind of illustrates it and explains it a little bit more. Take a look. At New Life, we believe that baptism by immersion is the example given in the Bible. The word used in the New Testament for being baptized is the Greek word baptizo, which refers to dipping or submersion. In the first century, it was often the term used to describe the method of dyeing a garment. The garment being dyed would be submerged or baptized in the dyeing solution, permanently changing the color of that garment. This is a term used throughout the book of Acts to describe believers being baptized or being immersed after their conversion to Christ. A very important thing to consider is that baptism by immersion best symbolizes what has happened in your life. Just as Jesus was buried and rose again with new life, likewise, you bury that old man and you're raised to walk in new life. The reason I got baptized was because after searching all my life, and I'm 57 years old, uh, I was baptized as an infant, uh, but I wanted to be baptized at an age where I could knew what I was doing and expressing myself. When I was brought up out of that water, everything, all the tension, all the worries, concerns, fears, everything just let loose. And I smiled until my face hurt for several days. It is a rite of passage, and it will change your life. It will change your life for the better, and it will change your life forever. There will never, ever be any going back, and you will wonder, why did I not do this sooner? Baptism is a joyous signpost in the believer's life. Being baptized in a public setting before your church family makes a statement. It says that you are a follower of Jesus committed to him. It shows both Jesus and your church family the strength of your commitment. Paul wrote in the book of Romans that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are saved. After salvation, you need to take the next step and be baptized. At New Life, we want to help you take this step. We give you a simple card to complete that is read aloud as your testimony to your faith in Jesus. We provide clothes in which you're baptized. We provide private dressing rooms for you to change. We try to make it very simple so you don't have to worry about anything. All you have to do is make the commitment to obey the words of Jesus. If you're a new believer or have been a follower of Jesus for many years but have never been baptized, don't cheat yourself out of the joy of taking this step of obedience. Seriously, consider, pray, and obey what Jesus would have you to do. Take advantage of being baptized at our very next opportunity. Trust me, you'll never regret it. The point of the message tonight is this. The only, the only appropriate, effective, God-glorifying response to hearing the gospel is to repent of your sins, to believe it, and then confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord by being baptized. And you can do it all tonight. 
You can do it all tonight. Maybe some of you hearing the gospel the last few weeks have already believed, and that's great, and you need to be baptized. But we've got everything in place tonight for you to be baptized, to go public with your faith in Jesus even this evening. We have the clothes for you to wear, everything. And um, I believe there are probably several of you who need to do that tonight. There are several statements on this card, and I'm going to ask you to check the one that applies to you if, if it does. First one says this. Three responses here. The first one says, My name is Steve Benninger, and I have been a true believer in Jesus since September of 1979. Today I am publicly confessing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and since I have received the gift of His righteousness, I'm choosing to identify myself with Him by being baptized. Thank you, Jesus. Does that describe where you're at tonight? If so, just check that box and put your name in there. Say, yeah, I've been a true believer. I put my faith in Christ at this point in time or this point or this point, but I need to go public with it. I need to be baptized. I need to follow Jesus and not be ashamed of him and let people know. And I don't have, you know, my reasons for not doing so aren't good. I'm not nailed to a cross, so I will be baptized out of obedience to Christ. Or maybe the second response is you. My name is whatever your name is. And I am responding to the gospel of Jesus today, tonight, right now, by repenting of my sins and believing in him. And I want to publicly publicly confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And since I have received the gift of his righteousness, I am choosing to identify myself with him by being baptized. Thank you, Jesus. I'm putting my faith in Jesus tonight, (laughs) right now, as I've heard the gospel And I want to go public with it. I want to be baptized. And then there's a third one. I truly believe in the gospel. I know I'm saved. I've been baptized by immersion since my salvation. But I've allowed my heart to get crowded, to get cluttered up with other things, and I've drifted away from deep devotion to Jesus. Tonight I'm recentering my life on Jesus and his gospel. So I'm wondering any of these reflect where you're at tonight and your response to the gospel. And if you're in a small group, just put your small group leader's name there at the bottom. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And if you're either of the first two, I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat. Come, bring your blue card up to me. I'll just say a word to you and then I'll direct you to my right, which is the men's side, or my left, which is the women's side, and they will help you know what to do to be baptized. But maybe tonight you want to put your faith in Jesus. I want to lead you in a prayer right now, okay, if that's you tonight. You could say to Jesus something like this, Dear Jesus, you could just pray this to him, Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know my life has not met up to your standards. But tonight I'm believing the gospel. I repent of my sins. I turn to you in faith, Jesus. Save me. Just ask him. Save me. Say this to him. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me my sins 
And I believe that God the Father raised you from the grave and that you're alive today. Come into my life and save me. Make me one of your followers. And then thank him. Say, thank you, Jesus. For as it says, whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then you can check that second box. As as our worship team plays, I'm going to ask any of you who, tonight's your night, you know, (laughs) be saved and baptized or you've already been saved and you want to be baptized tonight. Just come up, say that to me, let me know, and then I'll direct you in the right direction where to go from here and uh, hopefully we'll have some folks to just rejoice with tonight okay is that you come on up